All right. I'm going to open up to Acts chapter 6. We've been going through this series, and it started 12 weeks ago. It's a 30-week series through the book of Acts. So we're like a third of the way done. Um, but the passage today is kind of like starting a new series because there's a new tone uh, in the text that we'll, we'll pick up on. But I'm just going to read the first seven verses, and we'll go from there. So Acts chapter 6, it says, In those days... And so even this opening line lets us know that there's a different tone. Some time has passed since the first five chapters, that story kind of comes to an end, and there's a transition here. In those days when the numbers of disciples was increasing, the number of disciples was increasing. Um, This is the first time that phrase disciples, that term disciples comes up, talking not just about the apostles, but about the people of God. Here they are called disciples, followers of Jesus. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility to them and will give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa, or Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they represented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So this is another story that catches like this little glimpse into the life of the early church in the first century. And as we can see, the tone changes. Like the first five chapters we've been talking about kind of like post uh, the ascension of Jesus and Uh, Holy Spirit comes, and it's about like Peter and John, and they healed that guy, they go on trial, they get break free. Now some time has passed, and what we find here, and really from here going forward, is that problems arise in the church. And sometimes those are internal, and sometimes those are external. Sometimes it's from inside the church, sometimes it's from outside the church. Next week, when we're talking about the life of Stephen, the first martyr, that's like outside problems that have hit the church. This is more of like something happening internal in their community. And what we find is, like in the book of Acts, the outside problems, the persecution they face, the pressure from culture, they like, that does not bother the church. Like the church grows in the midst of that, but the internal problems are something that, that it creates a fragility in this new community. And here we have one of the first like issues that, arise inwardly. So we see how the church decides to handle it, this group of people. And here's really, really there were two things that had, had brought about this issue. The first was, as we hear, there's everyone in the church is Jewish at this point. Like, you know, this is right after uh, Jesus rises from the dead and sends to heaven. But there's two types of Jewish people that are in this church. There's two different groups that are, are, are present. 
And the first one is the Grecian Jews, or your, your translation might say the Hellenistic. They, they spoke Greek. And then the other group is the, the Hebraic Jews. They speak Aramaic. And so you have these two like, uh, types of, of cultures within the Jewish people that are in the church. And the biggest difference is that they speak different languages, but then there's also some minor differences, like their culture, some of the social stuff that's going on. Um, the, the, the Grecian Jews were from kind of all around the Mediterranean. And uh, as we know, like Alexander the Great conquers the world before the Romans, and you have like Hellenistic society that they're, they're kind of like steeped in, where the Hebraic Jews were the ones that are really close to Jerusalem. And, and what would happen is, as the Jewish people would get close to death, or they would make pilgrimages, they would travel to Jerusalem, so they would kind of establish roots in that area. And so this early church had these two groups of people that spoke different languages. And I've experienced this. I was a missions pastor like 10 years ago or so, and we were working with this church in northeast China. And uh, this church up in northeast China was right close to the border of North Korea. And so we were up there working with, it was a really large church, and they're working with the Mercy Corps, trying to get some relief work into North Korea. And I got to go visit one of the most fascinating trips I've, I've ever been on. But the church up in northeast China had two congregations, one was a Chinese, Chinese-speaking church, and the other was a uh, Korean-speaking um, church. They met in the same building, had the same pastor. He was bilingual. And they were, like, trying to figure out how to do life. And, and what, what they would find is, like, just like you would assume, you know, with the way humans are, there was all sorts of prejudice against each other, misunderstandings. Um, and they're, like, trying to figure out how do we do church together in this environment, um, all the way from the beginning, you have this tension with these two different cultures that are meeting. And we know that these cultures were, um, there's tension between them. Like we see that like with some other writings about what's going on historically in this time period. Before they become followers of Jesus, there's tension. And like being a, becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't just miraculously take away their prejudices towards each other. Um, there's, you, you know that like even the Apostle Paul, like later in um, Philippians, like he's, he's talking to the Hebraic Jews and he's like kind of defending who he is. He's like, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Like you see that there's this tension here that the church is learning how to navigate. It doesn't mean they're enemies. They're not at odds. There's just tension there because people, right? And, and so like there, there's an issue from that. And then the other issue that, that comes from that dynamic is that the widows of one of those groups have been neglected with the food distribution. And so in this time period, if you're, you're a widow, like no one's providing for you, um, there were systems in place with these faith communities that would take care of those who couldn't take care of themselves in that community. And so the widows have been overlooked from the Grecian Jewish side of this church. And they're realizing, like, oh, we have all these needs that are being unmet. So when you hear that, a couple things that, that could be creating this issue. One, um, there were, there were groups like the Pharisees and the Essenes that had these agents of charity in the community that would take care of the widows. Um, and it's possible that as these women were becoming followers of Jesus, they were put outside of that system of relief. Um, the second thing is that the church was growing like crazy. And if you've been following the first five chapters of Acts, what is one of the signs that the church is doing well is that there's radical generosity and there's no needy persons among them. And yet here in Acts chapter 6, that detail changes. Like some time has passed from that last story. And probably what's going on is the church is growing so quickly. And uh, it's becoming so large that the amount of people 
who are dependent on this community for relief and help, um, it's become disproportionately large, and the church is trying to figure out, like, how do, we, how do we meet the needs as this thing grows? And they're trying to figure that out. So you have these issues that arise from these dynamics in the early church, and here's the response. Here's what happens. They, they take it to the leaders, the apostles, and it tells us, like, they gather together, they pray, they, um, but the, the first thing they do when they hear about this need is that they don't ignore it. There's this issue that arises, and it's, it's, from, it's from the widows in the community, um, the people that are dependent on them, and yet there's a sensitive, sensitivity to stop, to slow down, and to say, we're not going to ignore this problem. We're actually going to hear what these people have to say. We're not above it. We're going to listen to it, and then we're going to act. Because they had this understanding that their message had, it was meeting spiritual needs in the community, but it was also meeting physical needs. And there were people that were, and you, they saw this with the life of Jesus as he was walking this earth and walking with people who were in need or who were sick or who were cast out. They also don't, they, like, they, don't, they don't attribute blame to this, uh, the, the, the Grecian Jews and say, like, this is your problem. Like, you guys got to figure it out. They don't blame the widows for, for being here. Like, some of the thoughts is, like, they, as the family was getting older, they wanted to be buried in Jerusalem, so they would travel from different parts of the Mediterranean, set up shop in, in Jerusalem, and then the husband passes away, and you have all these widows left. They don't blame them and say, you shouldn't have done that. There's no blame that's cast. All they do is say, we have an issue. Let's figure out how to make it better. So they don't ignore the problem. They don't cast blame. In fact, they try to figure out how to make it better. And then the result, like what kind of like what they decide is um, they're going to delegate influence to other people in the community to meet the needs in the community. And I think that's, that's important to note that they, they do this. And as you're like reading through the language of it, when we read it through like our, um, our, like our current cultural framework, like they say, like, we don't, you know, they say, we, we, we serve, like, do the ministry of the word, we don't wait on tables. Like, you hear that line, and you're like, ugh, these, are these, like, church leaders, like, too high and above, like, waiting on tables? And that sounds just kind of, like, a harsh, like, why, why would they, well, really, like, it's a word play. What they're saying here, the word of ministering to the word of God and serving uh, tables is the same word. It's this word that's diakinoa. Diakinoa means to aid, to serve, to minister. It's uh, part of a word how we get the word deacon. But really, it's like they're, they're saying, like, well, we, we serve this thing, so we don't, we don't really have a focus on this thing over here. And, like, when we read that through, like, our cultural lens, we're like, oh, man, it sounds like they're too, like, high above but that's not what's going on here. What's going on is there's this wordplay, and like they, that wouldn't have been a derogatory thing to say for them at that point. In fact, I, you know, I've worked. I worked at Red Lobster for a while when I was younger, and um, I, I know like serving tables and uh, like for me that was an, an amazing experience. Um, I feel like I learned more about people and even pastoring in that time. And if you if you are if you work in the food industry or hospitality, um, and you, you learn a lot about people, and you know that. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I think it's like, for us, like we, what they're, they're not saying here is like, we're too above this, right? That's not what the apostles are saying. Um, but what they, what they are doing is they're figuring out how 
to meet the needs in this community. And it's like they're not saying that we're, we're too good for this. What they're saying is this is so important. We need to delegate and restructure our leadership so that we take care of these needs because it's that important. It's not that we're above it. It's that we need to reorganize. And what you'll find is you probably don't want them organizing this as well. It's like the same with me. Like when it comes to an organization, like I could not organize like a one-car parade down Tatum. Like that would be a disaster. And like I would get the time wrong. I would get the car. Like, like there's certain like giftings that they're realizing this is so important. We need to put people on this that are, are, are available to take care of these needs. And what we have here is the church starting to uh, institutionalize. They're starting to add more structure and more leadership. And you might look at that and say, like, is that a picture for all churches? But you see throughout the New Testament, like, there's different structures of leadership in the church. There's different qualifications for leaders. And I think what the, what the model here is, is the process of discernment that these leaders are going through. And these are like the original apostles, and they're saying, like, we need to discern how we can restructure organizationally to better need, meet the needs in this community. And it's done through this discernment. And they said, we need to do both. There needs to be this ministry of the table and this ministry of the word and the teaching of God's word. And both of those things are important. And the church has to do both. And then from that, we find that there's these new leaders that are elected from that congregation to meet these needs. And there's seven of them, and they all come from within the church. And it tells us that they are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And then it goes through this list. And those seven names that I mispronounced correctly, um, that you, you hear names like Stephen and Philip, and then some names that you have no idea who they are, we never hear from again. But they're all Greek names which means they're delegating influence to this group that they're in tension with and saying, we trust you guys to lead and to have influence here to take care of these needs. And what we find is like this group of seven leaders flourishes. And when this message of, of the gospel goes out from Jerusalem into the Gentile world, these seven leaders are, are key because they understand the context of where it's going to. So like one of the names, Stephen, you probably know this name. He's the first Christian martyr. We're going to hear about him next week. And it tells us that, that he is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And like, even though like he's, he's gifted in like organizing um, to meet the needs of the widows in his community, um, he's also a defender of the gospel. And so like he gets into this discussion in the next chapter, and you find that um, he's, he's brilliant, and he's he offers this great, like, first Christian apologetic of what they're about and, like, what Jesus is up to, what Jesus has done. Um, you'll hear about him next week. And then there's this guy named Philip. And Philip comes back into the story in Acts chapter 21. And this is how we know that, that he's elected to do this, this task of, of meeting the widow's needs. And then, like, with that influence, like, his, his role just expands in the church and the ministries flourish under him. Because in Acts 21, it tells us that his name is Philip the Evangelist. Sounds like he should have his own like, TV show or something. But um, Philip the Evangelist. So if Stephen defends the gospel, Philip proclaims it. And in Acts chapter 1, it tells us that he has four daughters and that these, these daughters are unmarried and they, have, they, they prophesy, they speak powerfully. And I was reading about some of the, the church fathers and church history that were talking about Philip and his family. And they think that 
Um, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, you know, he's traveling around um, with Paul, and, um, and there's at one point, they, Paul in Acts 21 comes to this town, meets with Philip, who's one of the seven, and his daughters. In church history, says they, they think that these daughters helped tell the story to Luke of, of the, the story of the early church. And so th- this, this family becomes this prominent family in the early church. And then there's Nicholas from Antioch. And Antioch is this town where uh, the followers of Jesus are first called the term Christians. And like Christians at that point is a derogatory term. And, uh, and Nicholas, so we know that he's part of the seven, but probably is a big part of that Christian, the churches that start in Antioch and, and expand there. And we think Luke, the author, might be from there. So he's kind of like giving a shout out to a guy from his hometown, kind of like I would be bragging about someone from Phoenix or something. Um, but this group has been given this task that seems um, like it, it's a humble task, meeting the needs of the widows who've been overlooked for food distribution. And, uh, and they take it on. And then there's the outcome, and it tells us at the end of this little, this little story, it says, the outcome of, of this decision to meet the needs, to fix this problem, was that the word of God spread, a large number of disciples increased rapidly, and priests, a large number became obedient to the faith. So like good things are now happening again. There's growth here, there's momentum, they're meeting needs. We see like there's like this revival that's, that's breaking out. Um, even the priests, like if you've been following the last couple of weeks, they're, the priests are the ones that have got Peter and John in trouble. Like this is so compelling for them that they've changed their tone. They've become um, part of this early church and good things are happening. It's the church is both now serving tables and serving the word. There's this living out of this message, the kingdom of God here and now, much like they saw with Jesus. Like if the kingdom of God is where all things happen as God wants them, and the prayer, the Lord's prayer, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, the church puts that on display for the world. The church lets people see this glimpse of like our future destination and, and how we live life together. There's this pursuit of the kingdom, and there's this gospel proclamation that's taking place here. There's people that are, uh, are serving the table and then serving um, the, the word of God into this community. And we get to hear about this group of seven people because they were willing to do this task of taking care of the widows. So last week, I went to my grandmother's celebration of life, and it was up in eastern Washington. I don't know if any of you have been to eastern Washington. Um, I flew into Portland, met some cousins, drove down the Columbia River, down this, it's called the Gorge, where like Multnomah Falls is. It's like heaven on earth. You feel like you're in like somewhere in Europe or something. It's just gorgeous, huge river, mountains on each side, snow-capped volcanoes. And then you get to like this point in eastern Washington where like the tree line stops. And like we, we go and all of a sudden it's like, I remember as kids we'd drive through this area and my sister would always be like, those are the naked mountains because there's no trees on them. And you go into eastern Washington, it's all high desert, there's, there's not a lot of trees there. We go over this hill into this river valley and all of a sudden there's this, there's this huge small town on the river called the Tri-Cities. My grandma lived in this place called Kennewick. Some of you have heard of it. Most of you probably have never heard of it. Um, but we, we get into, like, we get down this hill, get into this town, and it's, like, you know, classic, like, middle class, middle America. The area was developed back in World War II. A lot of the technology that went into the atomic bomb 
was developed there, so all these people move into this area and just kind of like stayed over the years. Um, the, the area's kind of grown over the years too, so I think like the Tri-City area is like 300,000 people. So coming from a place like Phoenix, it feels very small. Um, and I call them like river people. Like this is like something off of like Lord of the Rings. Like they live off the river, they fish. Um, now they have ski boats and they wakeboard and it's just like this river culture, small town America. And I go to like the church where my grandma's um, celebration of life is, and it's a church that she has been a part of her whole life. And it's this massive building. It's like 3,000 people. And I remember hearing stories of this church when I was a kid. Like this is where my mom grew up. This is where my, my dad did like his first ministry assignment. And it was like a church of like 100 people. And I'm there and I'm like, this place is huge. And, and I hear these stories about my grandma that she becomes this follower of Jesus in her early 20s, stays, gets involved in this church, serves in this church, and stays until she passes away. She was 88 when she passed away. So like, that's like that generation, like my generation, we move seven times before we're 30. Like we, we move around like crazy. This, like she just stayed and faithfully served in this place. And my, my grandpa left her like, 30 years ago, and she just stayed at the church as a single lady, serving. Um, and she taught Sunday school. She taught Sunday school for like 50 years. And what was fascinating about this celebration of life was all of these people that she had like connected with in their early childhood come back to the, wet, to the, to the wedding, to the funeral. And, uh, and as they were celebrating her life, they're sharing stories of like, you know, because of your, your grandma, like I, I've learned about Jesus and I learned about the Bible and I had this huge influence like on my life as a child and set this course and this direction for me. And they would sing songs and sing these songs that they would sing back in Sunday school. And like we're having this celebration. And like if you know my family, I come from like this line of pastors. Um, and some of them are kind of like big shots and hot shots and preachers and not like me, not humble like me, um, but the, uh, like we're, we're sitting there in this group of pastors, like hearing these stories of how my grandma served faithfully for like 50 years and the impact that she had, probably never having more than like eight to 10 children in her Sunday school at a time, but over 50 years, like that's an incredible legacy that she left. And I'm looking around the room and like thinking of us, like we can't hold a candle to this, to grandma when it comes to her impact on the kingdom and her faithfulness. And what I found is this community, this small town America, like these people who had come together, who had done life together, like there was, there was this transcendent experience. Like they were a part of something like so much bigger than their own lives because they were in this together. That's what church communities do. They invite us into this transcendent experience full of meaning and purpose where our hearts and our lives and our souls are connected with eternity and connected with this church that is global and historic. And here's what I learned from, from my grandma. And this is a principle of the kingdom of God. And this is it. It's doing small things faithfully over long periods of time equals significant kingdom impact doing small things faithfully over long periods of time equals significant kingdom impact. And we see that, I think that's what's so fascinating about Acts chapter 6. 
was the task was taking care of widows who had been overlooked for food distribution. And this group says, I will meet those needs. I will take care of that. I will step up and I will serve. And that is what makes churches thrive. It's not the the celebrity of the leadership or the glory that we get. It's the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it starts small and it grows slow. And over, over time, it expands significantly. What we're invited into is a community like that, where we serve each other out of love, where we meet the needs, where nothing is above us, where we use our gifts, we do small things that might seem insignificant at the time, but over years creates incredible significance for the kingdom. I want to close today with these words from the Apostle Paul that I read quite a bit. It's in Romans chapter 12, because as he's talking to these early churches about how they interact with one another, like challenges will come from the outside, like challenges will come from cultural pressure, persecution, all that, but the, the problems that come from within is something that, that to be on guard to. The way that we interact with each other, the way that we serve each other and not feel entitled and not think that things are above us, but the way that we humbly love one another. He says this in Romans 12, and just hear these words. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though many, or so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. Some are very gifted, some not so much, like me. I just feel like I put people with good gifts in different places. So. Um, but we all have different gifts. All of us have gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. And then there's this list. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. And by the way, I once heard someone that was in the band say they had the gift of prophesying through their electric guitar, and they would get up and just shred. And I'm like, I don't know if that's what that gift means, but like <laughs> prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Like that could be the mission statement of any church. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of, the, of everyone. I think that's it. Yes. Um, like those words, if, if there was a passage to memorize in Scripture, um, 
to, to memorize that whole chapter of Romans 12. The life that we live together as a congregation, as a community, um, as the body of Christ, faithful and small things, um, has incredible kingdom impact over long periods of time. And today we want to invite you into that, to be a part of this community, to be a part of this body of Christ, to be faithful in small things, and to watch God work. It's summertime, things are slow now. Um, we're, we're gearing up for the fall. Um, our fall launches on September 11th, and something that we've been praying about. And, um, and as the church has grown each year, I know it's summertime, a lot of people are out of town. Uh, we, we kind of like restructure, refigure out how to best reach the needs in this community. Um, but we want to invite you into that, to be, to be faithful in small things, to love others well. And then I just want to pray a prayer of blessing on us today as a people, um, that, that God would empower us with his Holy Spirit, um, that we would be um, faithful but work from his Spirit, not just our own abilities, that we'd be in tune with the spiritual gifts that he gives us that edify the church. Uh, so let me pray for us, and we'll end in the time of worship. Lord, thanks so much for your word. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. That you came into the world, that you died on the cross for our sin, that you conquered sin and death, that you bring about salvation. Lord, we are so grateful to be a part of this story that is eternal. We recognize that you, you meet spiritual needs, and you, but you also meet physical needs. And those are reminders of what you're doing in the spiritual realm. You set us free. You heal us. You give us purpose and meaning. And today, Lord, we just ask that you would bless our community, that your Holy Spirit would be here, that would empower us to be faithful in small things, over long periods of time. We're grateful for these stories and these reminders in the early church uh, that there are issues that arise and the way that people handle it with discerning what your spirit's up to. Lord, I ask that we would be discerning people, that we would know that our lives have incredible meaning, that we would live life with such purpose. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on us today with your goodness that we may be a blessing to this community. And it's in your name we pray.